G'day and welcome to the Noob Spiro podcast. I'm your host, Turbo, flying solo without our anchorman, Shrek, who is still on his junket in China. Now, are you a passionate Spiro looking to get better at spearfishing? Well, you've come to the right place. As usual, every fortnight we interview the world's best Spiros and probe them for all their tips and tricks and advice on how we can all get better and what they do in their local area and how we can apply it to our local spearfishing. So if that sounds like you, you've come to the right place. Now this week is no different. We speak with Sean Haskup. Originally from Florida, he now lives in Costa Rica where he runs a spearfishing lodge. Sean speaks to us all about how he's had to adjust from spearfishing in Florida to spearfishing in Costa Rica and a few of the hurdles he's had to overcome to shoot fish. He uh, talks to us about shooting big Kubera snapper and also the returning populations of tuna, which is very interesting and his uh, technique is quite unique, so uh, stay tuned for that. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Sean and his hunting lodge, which is an absolute cracking place and very convenient for those in the US, just go to the show notes at noobspiro.com after the show and we'll link you up there. In other news, the hard copy edition of 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing is getting closer every day. We've just got the first chapter back from the designer, uh, Sky Bailey, the designer over at uh, Spearing Magazine. He's helping us out with this one. It looks absolutely amazing. Normally, Shrek just gets uh, on paintbrush and just does it up himself and it's pretty it's pretty ordinary to be honest so we've got a professional involved and the thing looks absolutely incredible so we're really really excited with that and we can't wait till that comes out all right well unfortunately shrek's not with us but we did do this interview with shrek before he went away so i'll right now i'll throw it over to shrek and let's get into this absolute cracking episode with sean haskell I just want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Adreno. You can find them at spearfishing.com.au. They are one of the world's biggest and best spearfishing stores and stock every piece of spearfishing equipment you could ever imagine. They've got three locations, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. So go and check them out in store. But if you are shopping online, save yourself some money. Use the Noob Spiro code at checkout to save $20 on all purchases over $200. So that is spearfishing.com.au and use the code Noob Spiro at checkout. Today's Noob Spirit podcast is also proudly brought to you in partnership with penetratorfins.com. Get on there, guys. Have a look at some of the designs they've got. They've got clears. The blacks are beautiful. Check out the Noob Spiro custom Oki print. It's mad as well. Larry's got a full range of wicker designs, and he's got beautiful finish on his fins. He's uh, recently updated his manufacturing process. It's even better than it was before. He makes some of the best fins in the world. Uh, he offers a full international warranty along with $25 flat rate shipping worldwide. And uh, to, to make that offer even sweeter, pump in the code Noob Spiro at checkout and save another 20 bucks. Penetratorfins.com. Support the Noob Spiro podcast by shopping with our sponsor. G'day guys, welcome to today's Noob Spiro podcast. You're joining Turbo and I as we interview Sean Hasker. He has got a spearfishing guiding business and uh, they actually just they have the hotel. They've got everything going over there in Costa Rica. It's a complete package. It's uh, yeah. So it's good to have you on the show, Sean. We've never had anyone from Costa Rica. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Cool. <laughs> so um, for our audience and our benefit, um, where did you get started spearfishing, and uh, what 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 sort of drives you in the sport? 
Um, I got started in Florida. I was born in Stewart, Florida. Started a lot with free diving with for lobster with my dad, basically going out on the boat all the time. Eventually getting offshore, seeing a lot of mahi and other species. They weren't taking the bait, getting frustrated. Finally said, it's time for me to buy a spear gun. I need to get yeah. in there. My dad said, all right, save up some money. Go get yourself a spear gun. Once you're able to afford a spear gun, then you're, you, know, you can go spear fishing. So took me a little bit of time working random jobs as a kid. Got uh, selling mangoes and whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bought, yeah. bought a little teeny uh, AB, JB Biller or whatever yeah, it is, yeah. a, AB Biller. AB Biller, yep. Yeah, the 24, the big one, the 24-incher. <laughs> yeah. um, started off really around docks and things like that, shooting sheep's head and, and mangrove snapper and – Yep. Then basically got the chance to get offshore, um, shot my first blue water fish, was like an AJ or something like that, yeah, then yeah. got into the mahi one day, and they're pretty uh, forgiving. They come up to you pretty close and give you an opportunity, so we shot like 10 or something like that, and then from then on, I started getting hooked into the blue water thing, and yeah. basically did a lot of diving there, kept going more and more into Cobia, and ended up doing commercial spearfishing as well down in the Keys, basically well-versed in everything in Florida, did, did a lot of everything. Yeah, cool. Well, your, your, um, your origin story sounds similar to many. You started off pole fishing, hated it. Well, mm. well, we we hate it anyway. I don't know. Yeah, if you I'm not a it, fan. Not a fan. <laughs> uh, so once you've got, once you've ducked your head under the water and and you can hold your breath for a little bit, um, spearfishing is much more appealing, in my opinion. Yeah, you but, pick uh, which fish you want. You know, instead of hoping for them to bite the hook, you pick which one you want. You're the hook. <laughs> yeah. So growing up in Florida, learning learning the ropes over there. What made what? When did you make the move to Costa Rica? Um, I've been here for almost three years now. I think I'm somewhere around like 20 months or something like that now here. Uh, the initial jump was, was hard. It was definitely a difficult change. Um, right when I got here, actually, my second day, I got kidney stones for the first time in my life. Ooh. And then seven days of dealing with that, I finally passed my stone hiking a mountain basically to break it free. Celebrated the next day with surfing, got hit in the head with a surfboard right back to the hospital stitches again. <laughs> <laughs> Blew a lot of my money. Didn't get to do much diving right away because they said, ah, oh, you probably shouldn't go in the water with an open wound in your head. It was right where my mask strap went. So I had to start yeah. off basically just staring at the ocean and not being able to do much and being this sickly person, even though I was supposed to be like this badass spear fisherman guy coming down here. So my yeah. introductory to Costa Rica was pretty rough. It gave me uh, a couple random things that made it difficult. But in the end, once you learn how everything moves a little slower here and the community is really strong, and, and the spearfishing and the, the jungle, everything is just incredible. I mean, the amount of life here is something that you really can't compare to anywhere that I've ever been or anywhere that I've ever seen. Yeah, cool. So how long, how many years have you been spearfishing for? Oh, uh, well, let's see. I'm 28 now, and I started when I was about 12 or something like that, 12 or yeah, 13. Right. So a good amount of years, I guess 16 or 17, whatever that is on the math. I'm not too sure. <laughs> cool. Well, we're, no, a little um, less than that, I guess. Twelve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all good, man. Um, t Turbo's really good at maths. Um, he struggles. Yeah, we'll let him do that. Shoot, I'm toes. like a savant. Shoot any mathematical <laughs> problem. At me. I'll, I'll give you an answer of some description. So, um, what was it like transitioning? Did you transition from Florida to Costa Rica, and what was that like, uh, like spearfishing wise? Um, spearfishing wise, it was kind of similar in some senses when I arrived here, the visibility, it was kind of like middle of rainy season. So the visibility wasn't like great. And it reminded me a lot of Stuart diving the, you know, you have to kind of what I call punch through the cookie, basically like it's surface viz, then you punch through some bad viz and it opens back up at the bottom. Really reminded me a lot of, of home. 
The difference yeah. is really back home, I, I hunted a lot of shipwrecks and rubble piles and, and artificial reefs that had been made by the government and the community versus here, it's all volcanic rock mm, and oh, not, wow. not really even like live coral. So it took a whole nother edge of like if you see a big coral head in Florida, you're like, ah, sure as hell, there's probably going to be a black grouper or something near this. You know, this is an active spot. It looks great. Here, everything kind of looks the same. So really, you can't, you know, swim up on a ledge and predict exactly where you think the fish would be as easily. So it took a little bit of of learning which species hang near certain things like these, you know, there's just certain small yellow snappers. If you see those nine times out of 10, that means the other Kubera snappers are near there and they kind of have like a a little symbiotic thing going. So it's basically not there so are. much based off of what you see, like coral wise, it's more of like fish activity is how you have to base your hunting and, and things like that. Ah, cool. Sounds like you've made quite a few observations uh, sort of with the with the differences. I, mean, I guess going back to when you started, um, what were your major, what was your major obstacle? Like what, what, what did you have difficulty with and how did you overcome it? Um, I would say I had, uh, probably my biggest issue was swimming straight up and down. Honestly. Um, I think it's always hard. You get the inclination to look where you're going. Of course, just the mental aspect of it is the biggest thing for me, in my opinion. And basically just getting through that mental aspect of you don't have to look where you're going and really you need to focus on getting down to the bottom, depending on what you're hunting. But if you're hunting snapper or anything like that, working wrecks, it's always better to hit the sand and then work from there on your way up versus trying to work on the way down. So I think that was a big thing that I advanced in. Another thing was when I was younger, I was diving alone, which is just stupid and really don't recommend. <laughs> you know, you just shouldn't do it. So I think yeah. that was another big thing was kind of getting over my ego. If I couldn't get anybody to go with me, then guess what? You know, you don't go. You you do something else. So that was a little bit. I was hard-headed. Yeah. So I guess those are what I had to overcome the most mainly. Everything else was, I mean, I, I felt really comfortable in the water. I was always, you know, fishing and, and in the ocean and doing a lot of boat handling and things like that. So I felt like, uh, you know, a waterman already. So once I was in the water, I was comfortable with, with sharks and everything like that because there's a ton of those in Stewart. I mean, every day you're seeing 30 bull sharks all over, you know, eight feet. <laughs> so that's something different for the nerves. So then coming here, the transition was pretty wild. There's not really any sharks here. I've seen five sharks in three years. And wow. and so you can hang chum from the bottom of your flasher, go down 60 feet, cut some chunks off. Nothing nothing goes near it. Nothing touches it. It's it's pretty wild. That's crazy. Yeah. What, what are they? What, are they fished out or what's the what's the game? Well, there? yeah, basically there was a time recently that where the Chinese were finning the sharks, basically. The same people that were doing the tuna fishing, which we can get into later, but they were basically yep. coming over, catching the sharks. It's it's nothing, as you probably know. It's like a placebo, but for some reason, people think it's like uh, aphrodisiac or, you know, some strength inducer. Yeah. But, so <laughs> basically, they were catching all of them. And so in return oh, well. here, there's really just not many sharks. You'll see really small ones. I've seen a single mako one time out in the tuna schools. I've seen one bull shark. And then the rest were all just small, little, little tiny sharks. And as terrible as it is for the sharks, it really hasn't affected the environment in a bad way here. It's actually kind of made, you know, a lot of fish populations and other predators kind of bounce back. So it's worked out okay. I mean, I could pretty much tell my clients there's a good chance you won't see a shark. Most likely won't see a shark. And so, mm. you know, I don't lose fish because of sharks ever. So that's a big difference from back home. I mean, you would lose, you know, 30 to 50% yeah. of your fish in a day based off of the shark's activities. But here, I've never lost a fish because of another predator. So that's <laughs> pretty amazing. That is, kind of, 
kind of handy too. And the trick <laughs> is to take a lot of um, shark fin soup for a few little um, dysfunctional problems. But <laughs> he doesn't actually fin anymore now that um, you can buy these blue pills. <laughs> and they're really helping him out. Yeah, Turbo's mum's happy about it too. <laughs> <laughs> no, you uh, Sorry, I had to go there. Edit just... that out, Pat. <laughs> Turbo's a saint. <laughs> All right, well, it's good talking to you guys. I guess. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Sean. This is the way heaps of our conversation. Gay. Turbo always tries to slip one in. Little does he know that I'm around it as... No, no, no. Anyway, right, moving on. Right, so, so you've been in Costa Rica a couple of years now. Um, when did you start your guiding business? I like I, I remember I was chatting to Andrew Concosis over there at Nautilus, and uh, he's been a buddy of ours and came on the show in the early days, and um, he, he, he actually put me in touch with you. And uh, so I'm curious as to uh, sort of how long you've been down there in Costa Rica doing what you're doing. Um, basically, when I first came down here, it was to meet up with a guy who um, who needed some help basically starting a business. We, we came down here. When I got here, he, all he had was a rubber dinghy that was like <laughs> six, 16 foot or 14 foot or something like that. And then in the yard, he had like a 17 foot Mako, but it didn't have an engine or anything yet. And so basically, he just needed help. He, it was something that he was interested in doing. He's, he was from Cuba. So I came down here and I worked with him for actually uh, a, a while. I worked with him for almost two years, but uh, he and I ended up having some some differences in the way we wanted to go and the direction that we were trying to head. And so now I've been on my own for about um, two months now, working with some some local captains with some other boat options, so we can have smaller boats for cheaper trips, bigger boats for longer trips, and basically just a bunch of other options now. So. Okay. I opened a new door with the business here, taking on the a resort basically here. It's a lodging for clients. Right now I have it set up for five, but in another few weeks or so it'll be set up so we can have up to eight divers staying here and kind sure. of making it all a full circle package where you can do your spearing, you can come here, do your lodging, we can cook your catch afterwards here. I can also help you set up with other tours if you want to go do ATVs in the jungle, you want to go do waterfalls and zip lining, basically all that stuff is now accessible from your door here so just basically making it full circle and and getting it more you know client oriented and just making it all a, a good experience so i've oh, been cool. climbing you know just to get to this point now it's a long road but it's, it's finally leveling out now and all working out pretty good yeah awesome Beautiful. so like where where would most of your clientele be based do they you get a lot of guys out of the states obviously yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had clients from all over. I just had my uh, these two guys that came from Israel for their second time now. They were here last year. They were just here two weeks ago. I've had people come from Florida. Really, a lot of guys come from Florida because the flights are very cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. California, Georgia, Texas, yeah, right. basically the southern states, a lot of people coming from there. And I've also had a mixed, you know, we do beginner stuff too. So I've had mixed clients coming from from anywhere from Canada to Alaska, everywhere basically. But the majority, really, I would say, come from Florida and the and the southern states, United Sick. States. And these guys come down for a reason. Obviously, you're putting them on some good fish, and uh, and Costa Rica's got lots of them by the sounds of it. And uh, in the Veterans Vault, we're going to talk about a few of the species. But um, what sort of uh, fish are the guys coming down chasing most of the time? Um, really, I think everybody's, when you think Costa Rica, you think um, Kubera snapper. At least I did when I first thought of Costa Rica. So that's always a lot of people's main target when they come down here. They want to get a nice big toothy Kubera snapper. 
Mm. Um, so I would say that's probably 50% of my business is guys coming for just the biggest snapper they've ever gotten in their life, trying to, you know, hunt world records. We have a lot of world record fish here swimming around. You just got to be there at the right time, the right place, and you can get that opportunity for the big, big ones. And then I would say the other majority of the business would be the wahoo and the tuna. The tuna is something that we just started tapping into really in Costa Rica here. It wasn't really a thing. Now we've got it pretty much dialed in, I would say, and, and it's, a, it's a very consistent fishery here as well. Tuna is just one of the most sustainable fisheries there is, so it's great to see them bounce back. So I would say those, those three species are the main, main things that people come here to target. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before the show and you were talking about tuna and how the fisheries bounce back and you were saying commercial pressure's been removed. Is is that right? Yeah, it's been now a year and a half that the um, the commercial vessels aren't allowed to fish within 120 miles of the coast here. Mm. And we have an area here that's called the canyons or the craters or the corners. There's a couple different names for it and it's, it's about it's 20 to 40 miles offshore. So it's in that realm of protected area. So the tuna have made it to this canyon and basically just bounce back and forth along this 100-mile stretch. Oh, and awesome. and they just keep building. They're working with pods of dolphins. They're constantly balling up baits of sardines. There's whale sharks and manta rays, and it's <laughs> a pretty pretty incredible visual experience. Birds everywhere. I mean, it looks like a, a pelagic T-shirt or something. It's, pre- it's pretty wild. It looks just like what you would expect in a tuna frenzy. And then yeah, some. Wicked. <laughs> wicked. Yeah, lovely. All right, so memorable fish, man. Like, um, can you share with us a story of your, maybe your most memorable fish? Um, well, that's hard, but I guess I would have to say my most memorable fish in Costa Rica would be my first snapper that I shot here. It was actually um, a 62-pound Kubera snapper. Wow. <laughs> and that's, that's when I kind of realized that I paid my dues, and I was like, okay, you know, I got a couple stitches in my head, I got some kidney stones, that's all right, you know, Costa Rica wanted to take a little piece out of me before they offered up the uh, the big pargo, so I would say that's <laughs> definitely my most memorable fish here. Yep. I guess to date, that was probably equal to my biggest fish I've ever got in my life. I got a, a cobia that was 62 pounds, and at the time, that was my biggest fish, so to come and get a snapper the same size as your personal biggest cobia is pretty ridiculous. So I'd have to say that was <laughs> that was my most memorable fish for sure. Okay, so what what actually happened when you hunted that fish? What, what sort of depth were you in, and uh, what time of day? <clears throat> it what was, was it um, early morning, not not too early. I think it was around like eight o'clock. Really, we don't get started too early around here because the fish <laughs> are residential, <laughs> and <laughs> and so they stay there. So depending on the client, I mean, for Wahoo, we'll get up and, and get out there early and try and do the sunrise thing. But for the snapper, for the most part, we give them a little bit of time to wake up, and it seems to be <laughs> working so far. But basically, I was in sixty-five feet of water in just a low volcanic rock ledgy area very similar to structure back home looks like a spot where you would see mangrove snappers and the visibility it wasn't great but it was still manageable it's probably i would say 10 meters 30 feet something like that um i I swam down 20 feet this is like my second dive swam down 20 feet could see the rock i saw the seafloor moving and i'm like oh i guess it's like you know seagrass or it's kelp or it's something like that i don't even know this is really the first time i've went to the bottom here in costa rica then i realized that that wasn't kelp it was all the backs of snappers everywhere <laughs> and it, it, it looked like a beehive of snappers of different colors yellow snappers and 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 red ones and gray colored snappers and just something that i couldn't even believe and I had five or six good-sized snapper all roll up to me, 
to be honest, I don't even know if I shot the biggest one. I just <laughs> shot a huge one. <laughs> that was my goal. And, and I shot it. And basically, this was before I knew anything about – you had to put the brakes on a Kubera right away, basically. So if you shoot a Kubera, if you've got a double wrap, you know you have to grab that end of that wrap right away and get him to lose sight of the hole. If he loses sight of the hole – you get him up to the surface, pretty much it's over. But he'll try with all his power and that big club tail to smash himself into the hole. Where I had shot him, luckily he couldn't make his way into the hole. It was too small, so he kind of just kept bashing, bashing, bashing himself in. I was able to pull myself up. I thought he was snagged in the rocks. I breathed up for a little bit, went, swam down, saw that he was just kind of wedged just a little bit, um, swam down, actually um, pulled him out, grabbed him, grabbed him by the gills and, and swam up with him and I freaked out at the surface. I, I jumped in the boat. I, I held it over my head like the world title for like 20 minutes. <laughs> took, took pictures by myself, like selfies with the fish. Like everybody else is still diving. I'm just like hanging out with the fish, just doing my yeah. thing, content with my life at that point, just relaxing, holding it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Finally, I was like, oh, all right, I got to get back in the water. And ended up shooting a couple other great snapper that day too, big, big red snappers and – and really just incredible here. The, the fishery is something hard to explain. You have to really see it for yourself. Guys, Turbo Reads, Shrek Breeds. Uh, <laughs> obviously, he knows more about this than I do, but Sparing Magazine have partnered with the New Sparrow Podcast today to bring you this episode. Turbo, what do you know about Sparing Magazine? But have you read one of the stories? No, but I've looked at the pictures, and they are absolutely sensational. <laughs> Love the honesty. Good stuff, buddy. But there's seriously, there are stories from contributors from all over the globe. And if you're interested in contributing, you can head over to spearingmagazine.com and learn how yourself. I've had contributors from, from people that have been on our show, like Ted Hardy, Michael Takash, and Jesse Cripps. They've got top-notch photography and some of the best stories going. It's an absolute cracker. Spearingmagazine.com. Guys, head on over to penetratorfins.com. They are proud sponsors of today's Noob Spiro podcast. We're happy to announce a code you can use to save yourself $20 on any blade purchase. That's right, save $20, pump in the code Noob Spiro, check out penetratorfins.com, save yourself some dough on some fins and get yourself some of the best fins going with $25 flat rate international shipping and a full international warranty. Larry's the man. Thanks, Penetrator. Right, uh, Sean, we've spoken about a couple of species, but um, what you've moved to Costa Rica. What's a hunting technique that you love to employ down in Costa Rica? Um, I'd really say the the hand flasher for wahoo. I would say it's something that I've noticed here working better than it, than in other places. I think um, back home, I know that the big long flashers with multiple with multiple components to it. Really seems to draw on the wahoo here, there, but here they're a little bit more more finicky. That's almost yep. too much, too much for them. If that makes sense, too much flashing. It, yeah. They can basically tell that you know fish don't swim in a straight line above each other. If anything, they're in like kind of a flying V formation or in a ball of some sort. So they're yep. they're they're smart here. The wahoo, you really have to not look at them in the eyes and and drop down when they're swimming by you and look in the opposite direction and. And hold the gun close to you, and and really that hand flasher is the biggest thing. Holding out that hand flasher, keeping it away from your body. I'm I'm right-handed, so I have it extended out far to the left, 
to really try to take their focus off of me, take their focus off the gun. And, and they're cheap and they're simple to use. And I really, I recommend them for, for, for Wahoo, maybe everywhere now. I'm going to try it when I go back home to visit for the Blue Wild and everything like that. I'd like to, yeah. to see how well it works. I know a lot of people use them, but I, I, here it's become something that when I have my clients getting in the water, I, I put one in their hand and say, you know, please trust me, use this. <laughs> Don't just put it in your weight belt, really use it. And I've noticed that has increased our Wahoo numbers a lot and, and increased the curiosity of them and got them within range. Okay. Uh, so... What are, what are these things made out of? What are they? Um, it's like a mirror, basically. You want to use something small. Um, it helps if it has an eyeball on it. I know that sounds weird, but really the science behind lures, really you'll see the majority of them have eyeballs. As they come in, they're focusing from further. As they get closer, they're focusing better. They'll notice that their eye's not there. So a small thing about the length of your pointer finger to the bottom of your palm is fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go too big because... If it's too big, they just won't eat it. You know, that something giant and square is not going to fit in their mouth. Something fish-shaped is really nice, oval or oblong, something strange, round. And, so, and, and really, the emphasis is not being big. You know, smaller than your hand is really is more than enough. So do you, do you make your own or do you buy a, a particular brand? Uh, I've Actually, I've made my own a lot of times just because I've seen how expensive they are really to purchase those things. And mm-hmm. so... Really, the hand ones. I've seen. I have a friend of mine that told me that um, I think Michael Dornalis or John Dornalis, one of the Dornalis brothers, are making a pretty good hand flasher. It has a bungee that goes around your wrist. I'd like to get my hands on one of those. It has a little bungee that goes around your wrist, and it's actually split into two pieces, so it has some tail action. Okay. And it's and, and it looks really good. I saw I saw one of my friends with it, and I thought that's that's something I'm going to get from him while I'm at the show in Fort Lauderdale. So I'd say that's the best one I've seen so far. But really, you can do it yourself. I mean, if you order online through Amazon, you can get sheets of, of mirror, thin stuff, plastic, basically, like uh, plexiglass. Yeah. And yeah. you can cut it cut it into your own sections or go to your local hardware store and have them cut it for you. You can get them made for pretty cheap. You end up losing them sometimes. That's the issue. Is uh, That's why I like the one with the strap around the wrist. Sometimes you'll have it in your hand. Then you shoot this Wahoo and you forget about it and then it sinks. And not only are you littering, but you're wasting money. So... I think that that one that straps around your wrist, or if you have one that has attached to an old spear gun band that floats up to the surface, I would say that's uh, the best way to you know have them and keep them. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, one other question: like when you're moving it around um, with your hand to generate a bit of uh, I don't know, a bit of like reflection, if you like, how right. how, how much are you moving it and how often? Uh, it kind of depends on how the fish is approaching. If the fish is already coming in almost directly at me and pretty slow, then I'll keep the movement subtle. But if I see that the fish is, you know, changing its mind or I see it's not looking or I see it's swimming adjacent to me but not really towards me, I'll, I'll try to work it a little bit more. But I don't okay. shake it like crazy. I'm not like a cheerleader with a pom-pom. I try, <laughs> to keep, I try to keep it lifelike as much as I can. But sometimes I try to make it look a little more injured, you know, if the fish isn't really into it. I try to change his mind and make him into it. <laughs> okay. I don't know. It's a mind game. It's a really tricky thing with the Wahoo to get them to – to close the gap here so it's it's a lot of fun it makes them one of my favorite fish to hunt for sure oh cool all right next part of the show is called toughest situation so this is basically like you know a scary situation that you've had out in the ocean somewhere and um you know uh, pretty much what you learned from it what um yeah what you do differently next time if you encountered something similar i think probably the scariest situation i ever had you would think it would be with sharks, but it really wasn't. It was actually when I was in the Bahamas. I was using a pole spear. I didn't have a float line or anything attached to it. I figured, oh, I'm in 40 feet of water. Shouldn't be a big deal. 
And on my way down, I was at the bottom, didn't really see anything, saw some small snapper, nothing worth going. On the way up, I saw a big yellow jack. I thought, oh, you know, it's going to give me a good shot. He came in real close, put a good shot on it, didn't stun it at all. It started going like crazy. Yellow jacks are really strong fighters. This thing was probably only 12, 13 pounds. And I was, it had the full band on the pole spear stretched out like eight feet. So I'm walking my hands up the band, you know, getting my hands onto the pole spear. And I had one of the, you know, like 15-inch wire slip tips on it. Yeah. On my way up, I'm probably only, you know, 15 feet from the bottom. It wraps the slip tip around my ankles, both my feet. Ooh. And I'm like, crap, still feel like I'm okay, you know, have good breath. But it's kind of like catch me off guard. So I, I work it finally. I get it to come unwrapped from my feet. I start to kick up again and whoop, whoop, it wraps around my feet again. Wow. A second time, really, you know, just poor line management, poor pole spear placement, just poor shooting it with, you know, without a float line. It was just a lot of things. And I had to have my friend, um, basically he grabbed me by my wetsuit from my chest and, and we, you know, pulled each other. <laughs> he pulled me up to the surface basically. And Shit. I didn't, I didn't black out or, or lose motor control or anything like that, but I definitely felt a, a stutter and a, and a hesitation in being able to take a breath in and, and, you know, an un definitely uncomfortable situation, you know, and I can definitely see how if I wasn't with my buddy, I don't know if I would have been even here to tell the story. And it was for, a, you know, a 12-pound fish and in 40 feet of water. So it really put into perspective how important it is where you're paying attention to every variable, no matter what depth you're in, because, I mean, it, realistically, you could drown in a puddle. So if you're not, you know, handling it right, then that's Sounds like a good buddy, man. Sounds like you yeah, had a really yeah. good buddy. Yeah, he and I he and I have had a couple situations. I've actually pulled him out of a pretty crappy situation before too. He's a uh, he's my best friend. Shout out to Tony Miller. <laughs> yeah. Living next to lives still in my hometown in Jensen Beach there. He's been shooting a lot of the cobia for me, keeping the respect levels there for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good, man. It's good to have someone who's got your back like um when I go out with Turbo, I'm always nervous, you know, cuz you know, if I black out, he was just pretty much just drop his weight belt on right. me, I think. He's wandering off looking at clownfish and stuff. <laughs> yeah, just like, oh, look at the anemone. It's... <laughs> yeah, no, he's distracted easily, so. Yeah. Mate, once he wrote me into his will, he's got a lot of nice stuff, so uh, I really yeah. lost interest yeah. in him. I don't know what stuff he's talking about. Noob Sparrow's taking it all. But, uh... <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> all right, next part of the show is called Veterans Vault, and that's where we dig deep into our featured guest's sort of area of expertise. And due to you sort of running this charter business down there, I thought we would do some deep dives into some species that uh, you hunt down there. So Perfect. let's start with Kubera Snapper, if we can. And um, we, we have something similar in this part of the world, but I believe they are completely unrelated. Mangrove Jack. They yes. look they look similar, but your That's guys a mangrove snapper they have over there. Uh, over here, yeah, it's mangrove jack over there. They call them mangrove snapper. Yeah, yeah, but I mean uh, they look similar. Different. To we have Kibera, mangrove but... snapper. Those aren't here in Costa Rica though. Mangrove snappers are in Florida. Those are also known as a gray or a mangrove. These ones here are cuberas. But I've heard of your mangrove jacks. They do look very similar. A reddish, brownish, pargo, big T. Yeah, I don't, but I don't they think don't they grow get as anywhere big, near though. as big. Nah, nah. Yeah. maybe yes. fifteen kilo, I think, or something like that. That's is a big one, that, which is like. Maybe fifty pound, right over here, and that, that's about as big as they get, I think. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a few here. Believe it or not, definitely over eighty pounds, close to close to a hundred. I have one that I've been seeing, you know, every once in a while. 
I call him the Batmobile. He's just old <laughs> and he's jet black and he's all scarred up. I mean, he's got scales missing from who knows what encounters he's had in his life, but he's just an absolute beast. He gave me an opportunity one time and I hesitated for a split second and he kicked away. I was just kind of choked up. It was too good to be true. I could have unicorned him and I hesitated for that one split second. Boof, tail click, <laughs> kick, quick, you know, tail flip and he was gone. So <laughs> he's still out there waiting. <laughs> All right, so you've got some guys that have come over. They're interested in targeting Cubera snapper. What time of the year is the best time to target them over there? I would say you want to come December, January, February, March, December through April pretty much. That's that's when we have our dry season here. We don't yep. have like a summer and a winter. We have a rainy season and a dry season. So December through April, May, it's pretty much the dry season, and that's when the water is going to be the cleanest because the rivers aren't flowing out into the, the bay mm-hmm. and, out, and out into the ocean. So basically, if you come in that's, those times, that's when it will be the cleanest water. The snappers are here year-round, but you want some good visibility to make sure you pick the exact fish that you want and, and see more of the structure and be able to work the structure a little bit better. Okay. And uh- – Kubera snapper are kind of unusual. They're not a pelagic fish. They're not really a reef species either because they they, they, they sit up off the bottom quite a bit and they're predatory. Um, how, do you, how do you go about targeting them? Here we have um, a, a couple different techniques. really depends on the area where you are. Um, a good indicator is, is the fish life that's around the areas. You're really just hunting the volcanic rocks here. We, we talked about that a little bit. It's, it's yeah, not yeah. so much... You can look at a coral head or look at a certain, you know, reef and say, oh, you know, there's got to be one sitting here. This is the spot where they are. Or even, you know, this is the hole where they always are. It doesn't really work like that. Like you said, they really stay moving across the reef. Here, it's, it's funny. I've, I've shot 50-pound snapper in, in, in one meter of water here on a, on a two-foot-tall two rock, really with nowhere for him to be. What he's doing there, I'm not sure. Just hunting in the shallows basically i shot that fish yeah, okay. and st- stood up with it but wow. um but i think really the, my my favorite technique is is when you're at the bottom really it's an espeto game it's it's a waiting game if you want the big ones because the big ones eventually will they kind of want to show you they got balls they want to come roll their shoulders up at you and open their mouth and show their teeth and and they're a prideful fish here in comparison to Florida and the Bahamas where they're pretty much just staying away from you no matter how big they are. You get you know one chance if they're rocked up. Here, we don't shoot them in the rocks. They're really big. They throw up their, their fins, and, and then they damage gear. So we're lucky enough to get them where they come outside of the rocks, and they're usually on the tops. And as long as you place a good shot at them, I try to shoot them through the gills mainly is my favorite. Um, you shoot them in the gills, you're basically closing off their breathing passages. So... It, it shuts them down and it also gives you good control, head control. You keep them from going in the hole. They'll really try to pound their way in there. So you have to take, be patient, make sure your shot placement is really good, especially on the big ones, and, and be willing to put the brakes on it right away. I mean, grabbing that line wrap and, and kicking to the surface. And grunting and a lot of other techniques work good too, scratching your fingers on the reef, grunting if you're trying to get them to be a little bit more, more active. Um, similar to Wahoo, you could do something where you're kind of not paying attention to them. If you see them cruising across a ledge near you, you can kind of act like you're looking in the ledge and sometimes you pop your head up and they're, they're right there next to you, kind of seeing what you're seeing. They, they have a sense of pride here. It's, it's pretty funny. So they'll come up and they'll, I've had them charge me before. I, I unicorned one that swam at me at like 10 kilometers an hour. I mean, it was just coming straight at me. No Uh, other, I don't know. He honestly, I don't, he, the only time I've ever seen a look in the eye where I thought this fish might actually just come and bite me and it wasn't even very big. (laughs) 
it was maybe like 25 pounds and it came right at me at full speed and luckily i was able to put a good shot in and i stoned it but i mean it was i've never had a fish charge me like that before it's pretty ridiculous wow. so they definitely have some balls here <laughs> sweet do you think that's just because they have lower lower pressures on the population like for, particularly from spearfishermen most definitely most definitely i mean really nobody else here is is doing what we do so it's 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 an amazing thing for that there's there's a couple scuba dive operations and and they really don't even go to the numbers where i'm at maybe one of them but they kind of just blow around with some bubbles and then and then <laughs> leave and the sna- yeah. yeah exactly and the snapper move back in after they're gone but <laughs> yeah, really, they just don't see, they just react a lot differently. They don't see a lot of people, so they definitely give you some more opportunities, which is nice. You're able to be more selective and, and pick the exact fish that you want and really and bring home your trophy that you're you know paying for, basically. All right, any, um, what up? How, how do you prepare your Cubera uh, snapper? Oh, no, not food again. <laughs> uh, Back to food, uh, my old I'd favorite. I have to say my favorite is when we get the smaller Cubera snappers. By smaller, I mean like under 20 pounds. I really love to cook a Pargo hole. We call it Pargo Entero here. It's the entire Pargo. And I cook it on the grill. I like to um, oil it down, put some slices in it, shove some garlic and lemon and cilantro in there, squirt a bunch of mandarinas and limes all over it. Mm. Um, and then throw it on the grill and then while I'm grilling just basting it with some garlic butter and uh, some more cilantro and then basically just serve it on a big platter everybody grabs a fork and a, and a plate and you just scrape off all the meat and that's really when you get to enjoy all the best parts like the cheeks and the and the shoulders and the head and the and the throat I mean there's just so many pieces to the fish that go to waste when you're filleting it and here you really learn to appreciate every bit of it it's it's really cool the amount of people you can feed with a with a whole snapper i mean two five pound whole snappers can feed you know five people no problem with a couple side dishes so it's it's really great to use the whole fish and it gives you a new respect for it and then also if you want to have some jaw mounts afterwards it makes it a lot easier to pull the jaws out after you cook it on the grill so another yeah, okay. benefit cool that yeah, sounds really good i want a cubera now mostly yeah. just for the food it's amazing, um, yeah. The small tur- turbo can have the jewels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. What about uh, what else were we going to so, talk about? Yeah, you, before Tuna. the show. Yeah, we talked about a couple more fish that you love to shoot down there, and one you mentioned the returning tuna population. So t- tell us about uh, how you're hunting tuna at the moment. Well, the tuna is a it's a pretty fast paced hunt. It's not really your normal beautiful free diving like you would expect with with most spear fishing. It's it's really fast paced. You're working with a pod of spinner dolphins. The pods are usually from 50 to 1,000 dolphins. Wow. I mean, really, it's amazing when you get the big schools all converged together. They're jumping out, and the, the spinner dolphins are cool. They uh, they jump out and spin. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but it's incredible. They'll jump out and spin like 30 times and land, and they're all showing yeah. off to the females. Whichever male jumps out and spin the most is the one that gets laid that night or something like that. Mm. So <laughs> you're, you're riding around. Basically, not full speed, but you're running at about 10, 12 knots. You run, you get ahead of the porpoises. The tunas are usually in front, next to or behind the the porpoises. So you try to get in and kind of predict where they're going to be. I try to do two divers at a time with me in the water with them, dragging two float lines out the back, sitting out the back, guns loaded. It's really a a fast-paced kind of Western-style shooting. You slide out the back. (laughs) The tuna start to pass you, and that's really not a chaotic pass unless they're with the bait schools. A lot of times they're just moving, trying to find them. 
And they'll come by you at a pretty reasonable speed, but not, you know, it's nothing intense. They really do give you good opportunities. And a lot of times they'll, they'll come in and, and circle around you and, and the tuna are in just as big a numbers as the dolphins. I mean, sometimes the schools, I really, I've never seen a school with less than a hundred tuna in it, but really the most of the time it's, you know, it's multiple hundreds and, and, you know, possible thousand tuna from 30 pounds to, uh, you know, to over 200 really just big, big fish. And they've made a huge bounce back in the, in the year and a half that they haven't been fished as well. So it's, it's good to see them here and the big, strong numbers and a very sustainable fish and, it's fast-paced. I mean, you can't even throw chum. It's really just jump in. The tuna's pass you. You get one or two drops, and then you got to hop back in the boat, cleat off the floats, and run back ahead of the school and get the next crew guys in the water. And it's it's a lot of fun, but it's it's not for everyone. Some people are like, I need a lot of time to breathe up. But what I try to tell them is, you know, breathe up on the boat. As I drop you in, you're just about going to drop right away. So it's it's not it's not the most comfortable spearfishing to be honest but the payoff is well well worth it i mean you'll you'll be in something that you've never been in it's national geographic i mean thousands of dolphins whale sharks manta rays <laughs> turtles humpback whales pilot whales everything it's it's pretty ridiculous so these these guys breathe up on the back of the boats and then they dive straight off maybe head down to target depth what um what depth are you sort of aiming for? I think the deepest trigger pull I've made on a tuna was probably 45 feet, but the majority of them just basically your fins breaking the surface 10, 15 feet, 20 feet. Oh wow! I mean, they're up at the surface gulping. You're seeing them roll their backs. They're they're kind of just coming through, kind of worn out. They don't stop moving. So when you catch them without the bait schools, they're kind of just cruising. Okay. And and they'll give you pretty good opportunities at at fairly reasonable depths. It's not too hard. And what uh, what time of year is is your tuna run, or are they there all the time? Um, I, you know, I, to be honest with you, I think they're going to be here year round. I haven't seen them slowing down. This is the first year we've really started targeting them, and and ever since the um, the fisheries ban for them to stop taking them, we've only seen them grow in numbers and and in size and. Basically, there's enough schools where they bounce back and forth this 100-mile crater that at any given time, there's at least a few schools within 50 miles of our port here, and we and we get into them That's pretty awesome. much 90% of the time. I mean, really, the odds are, are in your favor with the tuna. It's, it's pretty wild. There's there's the days where we don't find the dolphins, and, and that's fishing, but but realistically, the odds for the tuna fishing here is year-round is something that you can't compare to anywhere else. It really is going to be... I think sustainable year round for sure. So, what um, what gear do you advise your clients to use? Um, as really important is that everybody's properly weighted. That's important for a couple reasons. If you're overweighted, obviously it's not safe. And also, when you're diving into schools of fish, there's there's certain fish species that you don't want to spook on the way down, so you don't spook the 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 better fish below them. So, it's properly weighted really helps with your speeds approaching the schools and and looking more natural in the water. Um, the water is warm um, in degrees. It's it's around 75 to 85 um, year round. It bounces around in that area, but it's it's relatively warm. I wear a 1.5 millimeter <laughs> wetsuit from Nautilus that I got from Andrew, and it's uh, an op- uh, no, it's a closed cell, the one that you can slide on dry, and it's it's perfect. Right. Cool. And the water's warm here. I mean, sometimes I just wear the topper. And then definitely a dive knife. Everybody needs to have a dive knife no matter what type of diving you're doing. It can definitely yep. save you in a situation. And then 
the standard equipment, low volume masks, you know, a good, good set of fins that you're comfortable with. And, uh, and, uh, depending on the fish, blue water species, it's good to have a, a slip tip for the Wahoo. Um, they, they're pretty soft skin. So it's nice to have a slip tip for those. The snapper, I, I like to shoot them with a flopper or a double flopper. I shoot a Mythicon, um, Erevos. It's like a, a 130H or a 140, something like that. It's, it's mm-hmm. three, yep. three 16 mil bands, a 7.5 shaft. Um, I try to stick to 7.5 or above for everything here because everything's pretty brute strength and, and, <laughs> can, and can bend a shaft. So yep. I think basically I don't, I don't over do it with the big blue gun, blue water guns. I've seen a lot of people kind of getting bigger and bigger guns and and really that's not the style of hunting that I like. I'm I'm more of a close range kind of guy. I want to know that my shot's going to go where I where I pick it and really even if you've got that gun that's got six bands and shoots a 10 mil shaft, realistically if that fish is moving, your a 25 foot shot is a 25 foot shot. I mean, the chances mm. of it hitting where you want is is slim. So I, mm. I like to close the gap. So I, I stick with guns pretty much under under 150 centimeters. I don't move up to those big mid handles and those big 10 mil shafts. I think it's uh it's unnecessary and it's too much for swinging the guns around and being maneuverable. Right. I think uh, rollers are a great thing too. I, I have a I have a Peter Pan roller that I use as well, and rollers are a lot of fun. They give you a lot of uh, range and power in a small package. So those are also great a lot of fun too with um with hunting tuna in in, in particular are, are you running like rife atmospheres and like heavy gauge float line and clips and everything yeah i use uh, the heavy gauge float lines we use, we're not using clips on them it's so fast paced here that unless yeah. the client wants you know if it's one client and he wants to fight his first tuna in the water then we'll do it together and i'll just be there clearing the lines behind him and then and i'll clip the other float onto it but Mainly, we like to get in the boat and, and pull them up. I use a double wrap. I use Spectra for, for everything. I use Spectra for my shooting line, Spectra for my slip tip, Spectra for my reel, everything. I, I use that for I don't use wire or mono. I've had a lot of okay. mono, mono nick and tuna gill plates and incubera gill plates and lost a lot of shafts and fished that way. So I've switched now to, to Spectra, and it's, it's made a big difference for me. Mm, cool. And All I right. use only, t- only two, two atmosphere, three atmospheres. It just depends on your shot placement. I mean, it, basically, if you're shooting a tuna from the side, then he's going to have the fulcrum based on the shaft. So he won't. it'll be a lot harder for him to pull the buoy down. But if you shoot him straight from above, he's more streamlined with the shaft, and he can pull directly on the buoy, and then it'll pull it subsurface. But, but here, mainly, yeah, just a two, three atmosphere float. Uh, a bungee is always great to have. I put the bungee directly to the, to the shaft after the shooting line, so you have the bungee the entire time you're pulling the fish up and, and instead of having it attached to the float where basically once you pull up past that you're no longer using the bungee so just depends on how you have it rigged i don't i don't use the tuna clips and everything like that too much where you're sliding it through and yeah. here we, we fight them from the boat so that we can quickly get back with the school of porpoises because they're not stopping for us okay yeah cool. right. all right so um what, what's one of the the best fish you've um, put a client onto with, with like specifically tuna um, well, with tuna, I would say, I would say this guy, um, Isaac Gates, he was just here a few weeks ago. He's basically just, uh, he was shooting, you know, um, normal kind of Florida fish, nothing, nothing crazy, hogfish and snappers and, and I think some African pompanos and Kobe and stuff like that. And he got, uh, 
a tuna that was, I think, 90 pounds or something pretty wow, large. Like and yeah. so it was really exciting for him. I mean, when your first yellowfin tuna is 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 that large, it was yeah. really, really yeah. exciting to see him freaking out on the surface once you're pulling it up and you're really seeing the sickles and you're seeing the color. And once you get your hands in there and see somebody with their hands in that fish and you just see them so content and so stoked and just so grateful for the moment. And that's the best when you really see people just super, super happy. That's my favorite yeah, yeah. part of the job for sure. Yeah, I'm friends with Isaac on uh, Facebook. Actually, he's he's a, he's a good dude. Um, yeah, yeah, really, really good guy. He came and dove with us for two or three days, and really, yeah. really fun. Yeah, him and his wife Amanda, they're both great. Yeah, sweet. Oh, uh, awesome. All right, I think we got one more fish to go. The wahoo. Yes, the ever elusive <laughs> wahoo. Um, as we talked before, the flasher definitely is the main thing. I think. I don't know what other points you guys want me to make on those. Just basically i guess where and and how or well, what's the common what's some common mistakes you see with um with guys on wahoo um pointing your spear gun at the fish too soon and and chasing after it what a lot of people don't realize is when you have your gun extended your legs extended your body extended a six foot guy three foot fins a five foot gun all of mm. a sudden you're an 18 foot predator in the water and you're huge <laughs> And, yeah. and a lot of people don't realize that when you're spread out like that, you're freaking big. And and on certain angles, you know, something's going to see you and be like, ah, I'm not going next to anything that big. So I think it's really good at entering the environment very slow. I think when a tuna are approaching you, you don't just swim towards them and try and close the gap. You, you just drop straight down. Don't look at them. The hand flasher is key. Hold that somewhere away from your body, pu- pulling their attention to that. Get your body in position. Keep the gun tucked, hand on the you know handle, but keep it tucked into your body and really close the gap at the last second. I do the same thing with every fish, but especially wahoo will spook if you start pointing the gun at them and and show them that you're interested. Basically, you have to show them that you're not interested and act like you could care less and treat them yep. just like a standard fish that's there. And and that's usually when they really get close to you. Yeah, cool. Oh, good. I'm happy to wrap up veterans' fault. That was yeah. mad. It, um, Three big species there. Yeah, yeah. Sounds sure. like a sounds like a good trip just to do that triple header. I think. I think. Yeah. It's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> the big tank wahoo, a big tank tuna, and a big kubera snapper. That'd be like the. Uh, yeah. That'd be a trip of a lifetime. Triple threat. Yeah, mate. that's the Costa Rican slam for sure. <laughs> <laughs> If you're anything like my mid-30s friend, Shrek, then you probably look like you're dressing out of the 90s still. I've just got to say right now, a big thank you to Storch Industries who sent us a couple of shirts for Shrek in double XL. He looks bloody mint and he's not an embarrassment to be around. So if, you, if you're looking for some spearfishing apparel, check out Staunch Industries. I think their website staunchindustries.com. Check them out. Their stuff's absolutely excellent. They've got some great designs. For our long-time listeners out there, who remembers the episode with Michael Takash and Jesse Cripps? Well, Tacker the cover tart is at it again. <laughs> he's he's on the cover of Spearing Magazine. I just had a look at his uh, his website for uh, Underwater Ally Productions, and he he's been on just about every magazine in the world. But he's been on Spearing Magazine a couple of times, and uh, Jesse's responsible for those great shots of him. And if you'd like to know more about Spearing Magazine, head to spearingmagazine.com. And check out this wonderful publication. We love it, don't we, Shrek? 
Yep, and uh, just like you said, Taka gets more covers on Sparing Magazine than you've had covers on Grinder. <laughs> Head over to Sparing Magazine and check out probably the world's highest quality spearfishing publication. Uh, good stuff. All right, next part of the show is called the uh, funniest moment. So, what's what's one of the funniest things you've experienced out spearfishing? Um, I think just classic moments with friends on the boat, uh, people sleeping on the boat, hungover, and slapping like a remora on their chest for, <laughs> for you know for a while till it leaves a shoe prints on them. That's always pretty funny. Um, I really enjoy when the clients uh, get their first Kubera snapper on the ride in. I'll have them shotgun a beer on the tooth of the Kubera. They'll smash it on the on the tooth of the Kubera and shotgun their beer. That's always a, a lot of fun with the guys and girls. Everybody really likes doing that. And I don't know. I've had all kinds of funny moments coming back from the Bahamas and two of my boys sharing the the live well in the back together like it's a spa treatment (laughs) Um, hanging a fish from a t-top and it being so heavy it almost broke the t-top off of the off of the boat for the picture all all kinds of stuff i mean really just good times with good people there's there's too many experiences i've had running i think the best most recent and it wasn't that even too recent ago probably a year ago i was back home and i was with my friend freddie myers and we were on his little river rat boat, John boat, like 12 or 13 feet. And we were 15 miles offshore. We had uh, some ch- chum. We just we were in the shipping channels way offshore. We were finally a Coast Guard cutter pulled up next to us and was just like, what are you guys doing? Like way too far offshore. Like so we moved our way in, decided to anchor up on this wreck. Water was real dirty. I think we ended up shooting one cobia that day. Just had a lot of fun diving with each other. Hop in the boat, you know, cheers, have the cobia, take some pictures with the sunset, then start running in. We're running with the boat, and we're like, wow, man, the boat is running like crap, and we can't figure (laughs) out why. We're just like, there's no reason. We got fuel. We keep stopping. We keep checking. Finally, we get halfway in, and uh, (laughs) Fred stops and goes, you're not going to believe this. And I go, what? And he goes, we left the anchor out from the bow, <laughs> that out on the bow of the boat and we had about a hundred foot of line we were just dragging this danforth for uh, i mean for miles in this boat and it was dark we looked at the gps and the gps was like oh you should make it you know home and and 46 minutes or something like that or an hour and 46 minutes and it got to like an hour and a half and we weren't even halfway and we're like, there's something wrong here. And he would just, we couldn't stop laughing. I mean, pulling up the anchor then was just more embarrassing than anything. I don't think we've actually <laughs> told that story to anybody else. But oh, that's good. I'm glad you now, shared so. it. <laughs> that's a good one, man. Uh, <laughs> so that was definitely one of the funnier moments for sure. Man, we already sort of, we covered your dive bag a little bit earlier, but um, have you got any like, Real go-to equipment that you just absolutely love um, mm. in your own dive bag? Uh, equipment, yeah. Well, um, the belt reel is a new thing that uh, right. is kind of in the industry. I've been using one for about a year now. I have an Aussie belt reel, and it's it's really amazing for the pole sphere. And it's also yeah. good just for various other things. I clip uh, stringers onto it. I clip my flasher onto it. I can clip uh, fish through the gills if I have to real quick. Uh, 
I think the belt reel is just a really versatile, important thing. Mine has 90 meters of line on it. I've used it to mark rocks. I'll be down at the bottom and the visibility may not be top to bottom and I'll I'll wrap it around a piece of structure next to a, a good location where I saw a lot of good fish activity and I'll go up to the surface and breathe up and then swim back down my reel line basically and and shoot the fish or grab the lobster or do whatever in that area and then get back up to the surface and retract the line. But I would say the belt reel is a really cool thing, but you have to be careful with it. It's it's really it takes some experience. You've got really gotta practice your line management, have your friend pull you around in the pool, pull some line from it. Make sure your line is spooled really good so it doesn't back up on itself and get jammed because then you have to ditch the belt. And another okay. good a good tip that I, I learned from my friend Sam from Frontline Freediving. I think he spoke with you guys before. He um, taught me to put my dive knife on the inside of my leg. And I think that's important for everybody to know. Really with your line management, when lines are passing you, 90% of the time they're going to be passing you on the outsides of your body, mm-hmm. along, along your hips, along your legs. And so really, if you have your dive knife on your waist, on your hip, on the edge, on the outside of your body, or on your leg, or on your arm on the outside of the body, you have a higher chance of getting snagged up in your own dive knife. And if you're wrapped up in your dive knife, sometimes you can't get the knife out because you're Mm -hmm. wrapped up in it, and that's a really scary situation. So switching that to the the inside is is a big pointer that I would say I tell it to all my clients when I see them doing it another way, and they all understand it makes sense. You know, your lines don't pass through your legs as often as they do on either side of you. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then another big thing for me that I've done that made an increase is moving some of my weight from my weight belt to the front of my weight belt. So right next to the buckle, I'll have, you know, I, I use four pounds. So I'll have two pounds in the front of me and then two pounds in the back of me. And what that really helps with is your surface entry keeps you level and, and really keeps your body, you know, in kilter and, and going straight because it's evenly balancing with weight on either side versus if you have it all on your ass, then your body's going to sag, you know, backwards towards your ass. But once you move some weight on both sides and you have it even, you really realize that you're straight that way. And it also really will help you with bringing that forward leg forward, which is what a lot of people have issues with in their, in their kicking. Yeah, yeah. It's a big deal too. Like if you, if you get your duck dive right, it gives you so much more energy and oxygen on the way down. And big like time. if you... And if you get it wrong, it's just it's just a complete waste. And you, yeah, you dives. feel like crap right away. You're 50 yeah. feet down. You already feel like crap no matter how. Yeah, it's really the surface entry is, is crucial. And, and moving that weight to the front, I recommend everybody tries it. It's, it's not for everybody, cool. but I, it's really something that's made big strides for me for sure. All right, cool. What else in your dive bag do you absolutely love and maybe why? Um, I have this. I have the new Hammerhead GoPro mask. Really okay. fits fits me great. It's low volume, and it's got the GoPro mount on it, and that's the best angle, I think. The, I can't mount them on my guns. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. I, I'm always afraid I'm going to have line wrap up in it or something like that. So I'd say that hammerhead mask, it's really great. And another thing that I strongly recommend is a white snorkel. Andrew is actually the one that got me on that train, Andrew from Nautilus, and, and now I, I preach that to everybody because – that when you're 70 feet down from the surface, people can see that white snorkel. It's amazing, amazing how much that helps really okay. for the for free diving safety. So a white snorkel or a white belt or a bright a bright weights the the bright like uh, you know rubber coated weights are are awesome. Really just okay. for the visual, I want my safety diver to be able to see me as all, as much as he can, you know, without interrupting my hunt at the same time. Cool. All right. Sick. 
Well, that's an awesome yeah. dive bag. There were some really good tips in there. Last part of the show, Sean, is Sparrow Q&A. This is a sort of a faster round of questions, but um, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given for spearfishing? Um, slow down. Yep. Probably slow down. Really just focus more on how you're entering the environment, getting down to the bottom, and and being patient and really blending in with your surroundings. I mean, really, the slower you go, the more you look like a pro. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah. No, you know, that makes sense. All right, who's been the most influential person uh, or people in your spearfishing? Um, man, I have a, a lot of influential people, I would say. The people that I did a lot of my advancing with, one was Ryan Myers. He's now an, an incredible beast of a free diver and he's been competing in the world and he's a good friend of mine from from my hometown and and he taught me a lot of things unconventionally and conventionally he's the type <laughs> of guy that would pull the mask off your face at 60 feet and and just so that to put you in that situation and prepare you for it if a fish rips it off and you know say oh it was a lesson and or you know just <laughs> Or just, you know, just, just keep swimming, like, you know, don't puss out and, and things like that. That was always good. He gave me a lot of motivation. And then I would say uh, my, my buddy Tony, I mean, he and I grew up doing it together. We would drive down to the Keys and, and sleep in the car. There was one time we, uh, we put a canoe on the roof of the car and uh, tied it down with, like, 100-pound test mono, like a 1,000 loops through the windows and around. And so he, he's one of the guys that's really ride or die with the sport. He was always with me. He was always down for the adventure. If, if we made the decision and decided to leave in two hours, he was always in for that. And, you know, he's helped me, you know, in that situation where I got wrapped up with that yellow jack. And I've helped him a few times, so definitely a lot with Tony Miller. He's been my dive buddy for the longest. And then really, oh, man, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people just – everybody's really good in this community it's it's hard to list off everyone that has been an influence for me but really i mean i couldn't even i couldn't even begin to tell you everybody i mean everybody's no, had be- their own influence in different ways and so oh, cool yeah. all right so what's what's your current uh biggest challenge with spearfishing and how are you sort of approaching it now my current biggest challenge really isn't so much for me spearfishing it's just getting my clients to uh to the fish so I would say my biggest challenge is just patience. You know, I'll, I'll see my clients, I don't want to say blow opportunities, but miss opportunities or, you know, really that's what I have to base all my um, my business off of now. A lot of people know I shoot fish and, and I should shoot fish. I live in Costa Rica. I dive five days a week. Like, of course I shoot fish. So really for me, the biggest hurdle is just making sure that my clients have an incredible experience and that my clients shoot fish because then people say, oh, well, hey, if... Joe went down there and he was there for two days and he got this big snapper, then, you know, that means I have an opportunity to get a big snapper if I go down there for a few days versus me posting a picture of a snapper, you know, I dive 300 days out of the year. Like, of course, Sean shot a snapper is what it's kind of come to, I feel like, to me. So so more or less, it's it's really just um, having my clients, having a good time, being safe, um, and really just a full circle experience and, and showing people the, the town and everything about this country that's cool, too. Yeah, cool. All right, last last question, and then we'll go into something else just before we um, head off, Sean. Um, if, if you've got a brand, uh, like a guy, he's uh, come over there to Costa Rica, he's brand new to spearfishing. What are possibly the, the two or three biggest things you want to communicate to him about getting started spearfishing? Um, about getting started spearfishing, I think um, 
definitely recommend taking uh, a level one class with whichever free dive providers you know that are near and available to you. I think that's just really important to learn the safety aspect of it. It's yep. it's you know all around it's a good thing. I mean, realistically, even I could black out on a normal dive while guiding. So it, it's nice to know that my clients could help me out in this situation as well as keep an eye on each other. And and really, it's just to gain a respect for the dangers that are in the sport. So that's a big thing. Um, I think also hydration is really, really crucial. I think if you're planning on coming here, you need to hydrate, you know, five times more than you even think you should and just really, really continue hydrating because equalization is a really a big issue with beginners. And and one of the key components of good equalization is being really hydrated and having your eustachian tubes, you know, open. So Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. And we haven't actually had that on the show before. And I remember sort of troubleshooting um, some people's equalizing a while ago. And, and hydration is kind of like the last thing you think about. You always think about technique and, you know, what did you eat the night before and all the rest of it. But hydration is a big, big deal. Yeah, hydration is good. I mean, head position is important and and how you're doing everything and not forcing it and doing it, you know, at the proper times is, is important. But, yeah, really hydration is where I've noticed the most for me. I really notice right away when I'm diving if my body is hydrated. I feel like my, you know, my motor function is a little delayed, you feel kind of crampy, you feel kind of tight, and then your equalizations just go hand in hand with that, and they feel kind of crampy and tight too. So hmm, cool. I think that's important. All right, Sean, um, people can come and find you on Facebook. Um, what's the name of your page again on Facebook? Um, the page for the resort, which is the, just the best way for you guys to reach out to me, it's Haskup, my last name, Haskup Hunts, yep. H-U-N-T-S. Yep. Spearfishing Resort, Haskup okay. Hunts Spearfishing Resort. That's the Facebook page. Yeah, um, be great for you guys to check it out. You can see some some recent catches. You can see photos of the property. And tomorrow, I'm going to work on getting some some nature and and uh, jungle and culture shots up there too, so you can kind of get a little bit of the the lifestyle land aspect of it too. I like to consider myself a a land and sea guide, so I'd like yeah, to cool, cool. show you a little bit of everything. All right, and um, are you on Instagram? Yes, I'm on Instagram. My Instagram is blood, sweat, and spears. Blood, sweat, and spears. <laughs> I like it. I think I follow that. And yeah. uh, that's a really good. Uh, it's underscores between all the words. Yep. Okay. And um, yeah, I have a lot of great photos on there of, of Costa Rica and, and a lot of catches and and client catches as well. Just just recently, we actually got the uh, female world record Kubera snapper. So that's a pretty big deal. You'll see that Sick. that photo on there. She she shot it. Uh, Nicole Burko. She actually broke Sherry Day's record. Her Sherry's record was forty five pounds, and Nicole's was sixty nine. So a pretty oh. <laughs> smashed it. Pretty smashed big it smash, right. yeah. So that's that was horse. definitely that was definitely an exciting accomplishment for me and for her. So that was really that really cool. a cool notable fish. So you you can see that on there as well. All right, man. Any other actions you'd like our listeners to uh, take? Um, really, I think basically get out there. Everybody needs to travel. Uh, I don't say just go to Costa Rica. Definitely explore the world. You, you'll really be surprised what you find once you get outside of your comfort zone. Um, have faith in yourself. Be confident in your diving. Dive safe and, and keep an eye on each other out there. Good stuff, Sean. Well, we'll link up uh, all the things we discussed in the show notes. So if people just search uh, Sean Haskup, we'll have a page up there for you on noobspirit.com. And uh, it's been awesome chatting with you, Sean. I've had an absolute ball. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, really good talking with you guys too. Uh, Appreciate it, and I hope to see all of you soon. If you like McEwan's Lager, 
and we jammy dodgers. <laughs> then Staunch Industries is for you. <laughs> That's right, apparel for real men. <laughs> Get that up, you cult. Staunchindustries.com. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode and a big thanks to Sean. I hope you learned something. I, I know I did. I reckon it's absolutely fantastic what Sean's done. He's living the dream and uh, he's just uh, he's killing it over there in Costa Rica. Now, our next episode is with Ant Judge. So we're coming back to Australia for this one. And uh, Ant is just, he, this is a really typical story of a beginner to really competent spearfisher and freediver. I mean, uh, Ant started spearing mullet down in Sydney with a, with a sea hornet at sort of four years old, and he's had all the problems with equalising and those kind of things, but he's had a really good mentor. Ant is the son of Wayne Judge, the uh, freediving instructor and absolutely gun Spiro based here in Brisbane at the moment, and uh, together they are responsible for a lot of uh, good freedivers and Spiros. And Ant's been all over the world, New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, Hawaii, Italy, he's done it all, he's been everywhere, and uh, he's just an all-round top bloke. In Ant's Veterans Vault, we look at pool training and how you can utilise pool training to improve your spearfishing, uh, improve your bottom time, improve your depths, become a safer Spiro. And he tells us all the uh, little techniques and how things like streamlining can improve your bottom time. So uh, he's a wealth of knowledge and uh, he's been around some really top freedivers and Spiros and learnt a whole lot. He's an accredited instructor. So uh, it's definitely worth a listen if you're looking to improve your spearfishing. Now, that's next week. Now, if you enjoyed today's show and you'd like to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. We love that. That helps us out uh, a lot. Check out the book, 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. Uh, if you know someone that's starting out, it's a great resource for them. Or simply join up to the Floater newsletter. We've got uh, plenty of tips. We'll alert you when the uh, new episodes are out and any of the deals that we have on our sponsors come to you first via the Floater newsletter. So get on board with that. Thanks again for listening. I hope you learned something today. We hope your, your spearfishing improves. And until next time, stay safe and buddy up. G'day, guys. Thanks for listening today and joining Turbo and I in the studio with another great guest. Now, today's show was proudly brought to you in partnership with spearfishing.com.au. Adreno have also put together a code for listeners of the Noob Spiro podcast where they can save $20 on all purchases over $200. That's right, punch in the code Noob Spiro when you buy your next spear gun or wetsuit at spearfishing.com.au and save yourself 20 bucks. It's a no-brainer. Shop with our sponsors Adreno at spearfishing.com.au and support the Noob Spiro podcast.